On this episode of the London Lyceum, you'll experience a special live stream to YouTube episode with Dr. R.T. Mullins and Dr. Tim Paul on classical theism and conciliar Christology. So we cover a lot of topics in here, but we focus primarily on the aloneness argument against classical theism and whether that works. And then we focus on the two sons worry with conciliar Christology and whether that works. There's also a lot of viewer Q&A as well. So this was a lively episode and a lot of fun. If you're into the YouTube experience and you'd like being able to watch it online, go check out our YouTube page, hit subscribe, hit like, and watch the whole thing there. It's a full two hours of goodness between these two guys having a really friendly and generous discussion and debate. But if you're into the more convenience of the podcast, listen to the whole thing here and enjoy it. We know you will. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, welcome, everybody, to another episode of the London Lyceum. Today, we are looking forward to talking with Dr. Tim Paul and Dr. Ryan Mullins about all things classical theism and conciliar Christology. So we've got a lot of time for Q&A, so this should be fun. Sorry for starting a little bit late. Uh, trying out a new uh, system to see if this works and see if this is better. We'll be able to share some screens and do some cool stuff. Uh, that we can't do with other platforms. So hopefully this will go well. So I'll go ahead and bring uh, our guests in and then I'll introduce each of them. So we've got this cool thing here that I can tell you, this is Dr. Timothy J. Paul at the University of St. Thomas. So you should go check out his work. He's got a website. He's got um, all sorts of cool things hanging out there. He's doing writing papers, writing books. I mean, I I found his books extremely helpful. you think in defense of conciliar Christology, in defense of extended conciliar Christology, and he's got that smaller book on the incarnation as well as some uh, forthcoming publications. So check out his stuff. And then we've got Dr. Uh, R.T. Mullins, who I have here is at Palm Beach Atlantic University, but he's all over the map. He's got all sorts of places he's teaching and doing things. So he writes a new paper every week, and you can find that at his website, rtmullins.com. And you can keep up with all that goes on there. He's also got a podcast that you can check out, The Reluctant Theologian. So let's go ahead and get down to business. We're going to have a fun discussion here. So Tim and Ryan know each other. So this will be pretty nice to be able to just kind of have a useful, constructive talk. So there won't be the the awkwardness of, I don't know this other person, so I don't want to step on their toes. We can actually really get down and just kind of discuss the arguments. So I think... We're going to start a little bit with classical theism related things. So Ryan has something called the aloneness argument that I think if I remember you and Joe Schmid published something on it. I don't know if you've published elsewhere on this or not, but we're going to just talk through aloneness argument. I don't know, Ryan, if you want to start and just kind of like give us the the, the run of the argument. And mm-hmm. then, Tim, you guys just kind of talk through that a little bit. And then from there, um, we'll talk more conciliar Christology. But I think that's that's the plan. So if Ryan, you want to jump in, I'll let you sure. go ahead. Let me go ahead and pull up this handy little slideshow I made. Um, right. So yeah, tell me if you're tell me if you can see this now. I see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, so this is the aloneness argument. This is you'll notice it says R.T. Mullen style. So yeah, Joe Schmidt and I published a paper on this in Religious Studies, and then Tim and W. Matthews Grant wrote a response to it. Uh, Joe wanted me to mention that he has his own response to Tim and Grant on uh, the majesty of reason. Uh, so he's got this nice point by point blog post where he responds to everything. And then he also has this weird macaroni and cheese recipe thrown in there somewhere. I don't know. He's, he's a weird guy. So he does some stuff like this every now and then. 
Um, but this is my own style uh, version of the argument. I think it's slightly less technical, but we'll see. So what I'm going to do is start with uh, seven assumptions. I gave Tim uh, eight assumptions originally, and he told me you should cut some of these because they weren't doing anything in the argument, and I cut one of them. Uh, so um, if Tim's version of this looks slightly different, that's why. Uh, so here's the assumptions here. So A1, creation ex nihilo affirms that prior to creation, God exists all alone. A2, classical theism affirms that God is free to create or not create. And then A3, classical theism, says that God is free to create this universe or a different universe. And in these first three, let me uh, say, are what distinguishes classical theism from something like panentheism. Because panentheism denies creation ex nihilo, and then panentheism denies that God is free to create or not create. They affirm something called the necessity of creation, uh, meaning that God has to create something of some sort. So uh, continuing on, so A4, uh, classical theism says that all of God's knowledge is self-knowledge, either knowledge of his own essence or knowledge of his own will. And then A5, classical theism says that God's knowledge is identical to himself. And then A6, uh, divine simplicity says that all that is intrinsic to God is identical to God. And then A7, divine simplicity says that God does not have any accidents. Now, since there's a bunch of uh, internet classical theists who accuse me of just not knowing anything, I decided I'd go ahead and put some quotes here to kind of back up some of these premises. So you can see that this really is what the what the view is saying. So creation ex nihilo affirms that prior to creation, God exists all alone. So this is a view that's affirmed by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. So Sam Levens here, uh, uh, Tim and I both know Sam. Uh, Sam says, the universe was created by God at some point in time, perhaps the first moment in time, before which there was nothing except God. Alexander Brody is a medievalist, a medieval scholar, and he says, in the high Middle Ages, all the major theologians of the Christian West teach that God created our world ex nihilo. That is, that first there is there's God and no world, and then by an act of divine will, there's a world which is in some sense at a distance from and therefore other than God. Carrying on, Origen. Origen says, God is one who created and set in order all things and who, when nothing existed, caused the universe to be. And then Boethius makes similar statements. Now this, our religion, which is called Christian and Catholic, is founded chiefly on the following assertions. From all eternity, that is, before the world was established, and so before all that is meant by time began, there has existed one divine substance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Moses Maimonides, in the beginning, God alone existed and nothing else. And then Al-Ghazali, because I haven't uh, quoted any, uh, any Muslims yet. God brought it, the universe, into being after its non-existence and made it something after it had been nothing, since from all eternity, he alone was existent and there was nothing along with him. So again, creation ex nihilo affirms that prior to creation, there's God just all alone. Hence why Joe and I call it the aloneness argument. So A2, classical theism affirms that God is free to create or not create. There's a lot of places where you can find these kind of distinctions. You see this in Aquinas. You see this in Eleanor Stump. Norman Kretzmann has this really great paper called A General Problem of Creation, just why would God create anything at all? And then John Webster, who is following distinctions that you find in Aquinas and in a lot of the Catholic and Protestant scholastics, he points out there's this distinction between God's imminent and transitive operations. So God's imminent operations, his imminent actions, these are supposed to be things that are like w within God, uh, like say, begetting of the sun, spiriting of the spirit. And these are necessary actions, actions that God has to perform. Whereas the transitive operations, these are actions that apply to like creating a universe, a uh, particular kind of universe, providence, incarnation, atonement, all that, all that stuff. Those are supposed to be contingent actions, actions God does not have to perform. He is free to perform them or not perform them. 
So his, his transitive will, his transitive operations, his transitive actions, those are supposed to be contingent because they're free. Now, A3, classical theism says that God is free to create this universe or a completely different universe. And you see this a lot. You see this in Augustine and Aquinas and, and others. They'll talk about God does not do all that he could do. There's other things he could do. He could create lots of different kinds of universes. He could create a universe where the Holy Spirit becomes incarnate instead of the sun. He could create a, a universe where there's no incarnation at all. He could do this, all sorts of stuff. And Norman Kretzmann has a, another classic paper on this called A Particular Problem of Creation. Why would God create this world? Uh, and, and then my friend uh, uh, Jeremy, he has a really great paper called A Better Solution to the General Problem of Creation, where he looks at this classical account of free will, and he's trying to defend classical theistic answers to these problems of the general and particular problem of creation. A4 and A5, so classical theism says that all of God's knowledge is self-knowledge, either knowledge of his own essence or knowledge of his own will. And then classical theism says that God's knowledge is identical to himself. So if you want to see a really lengthy historical exegesis of these two points, check out my book, The End of the Timeless God, Chapter 4. I lay out all the historical uh, exegesis of medieval scholars and even some of those like really dirty people who are like after the medieval era. We, we all know that like they're evil, but you know uh, they, they still say similar things. So Augustine, here's a great example. So Augustine says that like all God knows all things through some kind of self-perception, some sort of introspection of his own essence. By having a perfect knowledge himself, God knows all things. And then further, God is simple, so his knowledge is his substance. It's identical to his substance. And then Catherine Rogers, uh, in her book on perfect being theology, says she says the doctrine of divine simplicity entails that God is his act of knowing and causing. He just is identical to these things. Now, A6, divine simplicity says that all that is intrinsic to God is identical to God. You see this in Augustine. You see this in the contemporary uh, theologian, James Dozel, who wants to defend classical theism. There's this constant slogan that whatever is in God is God. And I got a nice little quote here from Aquinas saying the same thing. A7, divine simplicity says that God does not have any accidents. So Peter Lombard, because I haven't quoted him yet, he says the same substance alone is properly and truly simple, in which there is no diversity or change or multiplicity of parts or accidents or of any other forms. You see this in Brian Davies' account of divine simplicity. You see it in Eleanor Stump's account. You see it in everybody's account. No accidental properties. No one wants that. Even Scotus, when he introduces his formal distinction, he's still like, accidents, those are repugnant to the divine nature. So those are the, the classical theistic assumptions that I need in order to get the aloneness argument up and running. And you might think, okay, well, well so what, Ryan? Think, thanks for telling us these things. We already knew all that. Well, here's the so what. Reflect on God's perfect ra rationality and his perfect freedom. He's got the, he's got the ability to, to create or not create and the ability to create this universe or any other universe. Well, that's going to entail that God has some contingent knowledge. Why? Well, because if God exists all alone, say God decides, I don't want to create anything. All these creatures, they're horrible. I'm not creating any of them. He decides to exist all alone. Well, that's going to be a contingent state of affairs because God knows that he could create things if he wanted to. Well, let's say that God does decide, well, okay, I want to create this universe. Well, he knows that he could have existed alone, so he's got some contingent knowledge. Or he knows, well, I could have created something else. So, so whichever thing, whichever action God decides to perform or refrain from performing, he's going to have some contingent knowledge. And from that, what follows? Well, nothing God contingently has can be essential to God. Because if it's contingent, it's not essential. So God's contingent knowledge is accidental to God. Well, then so God has an accident. 
It's not like God's drunk driving and he gets in an accident because, you know, God's really responsible because in my denomination, we were like, we don't have like a wine within our, within our Eucharist. It's all like we're all teetotalers. So, you know, there's no worry that God's going to have a DUI after taking the Eucharist. So God's not going to have that kind of accident. He's going to have a metaphysical accident. Now, A12, God does not have an accident and God does have an accident. And you might think, well, hang on, what is that? Well, that's a contradiction. And so God does not have an accident and God does have an accident. That's, that's bad. I don't care what J.C. Beale says. We all know that contradictions are bad. From Augustine to Charles Hodge, all these theologians want to say contradictions are bad. They have no place in our theology. Charles Hodge even says it's impossible for God to require us to believe a contradiction because contradictions are just impossible. He thinks that's like the foundation for doing systematic theology. Okay, and there you go. And there's the argument all nice and neat uh, laid out there. So... That's that's all I got for this one. All right, Tim, do you want to interact with that at all? Boy, I'd love to. Uh, Ryan, can I ask you to go back to that very last slide? Sorry, mm-hmm. I just want to be able to point to the premises. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Mm-hmm. Maybe, Is that good? If, that's great. If we can keep that up, then I can ask about individual premises. Yeah, sounds good. Um, Wonderful. Thanks. So, uh, Jordan, thanks for having me on. Uh, Ryan, uh, really wonderful to interact with you again. I miss seeing you more often. Now that you're on the same side of the pond as I am, maybe we'll see each other more at conferences. That would be wonderful. Um, So first, Ryan uses phrases like God's contingent knowledge in A10. And in other premises, God has some contingent knowledge. And first, I just want to ask, when you refer to God's contingent knowledge, what is the what are you referring to? I mean, it might be the truth known. So it might be to use your example, the truth that God exists all alone. Maybe that's what God's contingent knowledge means. Uh, maybe it refers to the truth God knows that He exists all alone. So maybe it's not just God exists all alone, but God knows that He exists all alone. Maybe that's what God's contingent knowledge points to. Or a third, it could be maybe God's act of knowing the thing by which God knows the propositions or truths that he does in fact know. So I've got maybe different ways to go, different paths for each of mm-hmm. those. But first question, what do you mean by such phrases? Yeah, that's really good. So I want to go with all three. So I want to say it's the act of knowing that's contingent. Uh, it's also going to, the propositional content's going to be contingent. Uh, and, and all of this is going to be grounded in the contingency of what God's willed to do. So God knows that he is performed a contingent action, a transitive action of creating this particular universe or, you know, refraining. So it's, it's, so it's going to be, so I'm hoping that this, uh, this con- contingent knowledge is going to capture all those kind of senses of, uh, contingent active knowing, um, uh, knowing through a contingent will, and then the propositional content being contingent. Okay. I'm looking at what you label as a eight and you say necessarily God has some contingent knowledge mm-hmm. and contingent knowledge there. Are you meaning contingent knowledge there to name a contingent act? It could be. So uh, it depends what God does. So if God does refrains, seems like that's going to be contingent because he could have done something. Uh, if God creates a universe, well, that's going to be contingent act. Uh, and then I, I guess if you're going to go with divine simplicity, you're going to have to say that act of, uh, of willing a universe is also going to be identical to his act of knowing that he has willed that universe. Here's, here's my worry. Mm-hmm. I, I think it does. Uh, in A8, you tell me necessarily God has some contingent knowledge. And if that's pointing to a thing, an act, for instance, some entity, whatever entity it is, something with positive ontological status, 
if you're saying necessarily God has some entity with a positive ontological status, and that entity is contingent, I think we have a problem with that premise, because A8 then tells me there's always, in every possible world, at least one non-God contingent thing existing, whatever that act is that he has. But that, of course, would, would be contradictory to the assumption of aloneness we made for argument's sake. If we're assuming God could exist alone, and we're also saying necessarily in every world God exists with some other contingent entity, those two, I think, are contradictory. And so it seems like the premises of the argument turn out to be contradictory. Ah, okay. I want to make sure I'm following this. So if I take this contingent act to be a contingent thing, uh, then you're worried it's going to get a contradiction. Is because you're thinking that this contingent thing is external to God? I'm just thinking on any contingent thing is not identical to God. And in mm. the alone world, only mm. God exists. So we need at least one possible world where there's only one entity and that's God. But right. premise eight tells me in every possible world, there's at least one contingent entity, that act of knowing that God has. And I think you can't have both those at the same time. Yeah, and I, th I think that's right. But I think that's going to be a problem for the classical theist. So when Gloria Frost tells me that um, classical theism, like Toma, uh, Aquinas and Scotus and others, when they're saying what grounds the contingency of, of the universe is the contingency of God's will. And, I, and then Matthew Levering's like, yep, yep, yep. That's great. Uh, I really like that God has a contingent will. And John Webster's like, yeah, it's cool. And I'm like, okay. But then you also say this will is identical to God. Well, how can a contingent will be identical to a necessarily existent uh, thing? Like, I, I don't understand how this works. So I think the problem you're pointing out is good, but I think it's a problem for classical theism. I think it shows like a deeper problem here for classical theism, which is one of the reasons why I find, I sometimes find it difficult to articulate an argument like the aloneness argument, because I have to fudge somewhere in the way that the classical theist wants me to fudge, which is in this case, I'm going to go, okay, I'll grant you, you've got this contingent will. I don't know how to make it identical to God like you want it to. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I wonder, you said it's a bigger problem for classical theists. And, yeah. Um, my worry is this, this is an argument you're providing. So mm -hmm. you should, I mean, if they're your premises, you should sure, stand okay. by them. And if, and if premise eight contradicts a previous premise, that's a problem. I think if it's a problem for me, it's also a problem for you. I, okay, in terms of developing the argument, yeah, because I'm I'm trying to, again. What I'm trying to do with this is trying to grant the classical theist all the claims that they want that they do in fact make, and these contingent knowledge claims that seems like a really obvious one, because again they're going to go well. Look, God's free to create or not create, and His knowledge is going to be based on His will of what He's willed to bring about. And I'm like, okay, cool, He got that. Now nothing that's contingent can be essential to God. So, so yeah. So if I reject premise eight. So say we get rid of premise eight, then I don't know how to develop all the other stuff that the classical theist wants to say. In which case then, yeah, okay, I, 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 see the, I see the worry like how this would be bad for this argument, mm -hmm. but I don't see how this is going to help me really articulate what the classical theist wants to say in order to develop any argument against classical theism, for or against. Because it's going to be pointing out to it. Because if we do what we're doing here now, it seems like is we're rejecting A8 because it is inconsistent with all the other things classical theists in fact say. Uh, and this, but this is something that they also say. And so I'm like, Ooh, Ooh. Okay. I would grant a eight if it's understood as merely uh, referring to a, a truth. So necessarily mm -hmm. in every world, there is some truth that's not true in all worlds. And God knows that truth in that world. I think so that's true. I want to, I want to understand this a bit better. Um, so there's just this truth that's floating out there. It's not a divine idea. 
Well, I don't even want it to be floating out there. If, if you're, if we're really assuming there's a possible alone world, mm-hmm. you better not have a second thing there. So right. you shouldn't have a, a floating truth. So it's so going to be a divine I think idea. God doesn't, it's going to be something <laughs> that's nothing. It's not, it's not actually going to be a thing is a claim. If we're, oh. if we're assuming aloneness, it's like God's awareness, but not awareness through propositions because to have a proposition there is already to have one too many things in an alone world. Mm-hmm. So like, so tr- traditionally, like we just throw those in the mind of God and then say, that's why when God knows his essence, he, he knows all the stuff because he knows his own ideas. So that would get the aloneness. I would think, right? If it's just him there. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's fine. Uh, that now I'm trying to, and so then the truth value though, uh, the idea that's going to, it seems like the divine idea is going to have a truth value and that's going to be contingent. Is that, would that be safe to say? Like the proposition there are no zebras, you might think. Yeah. Just the truth there are no zebras. He knows that proposition, or if you don't want to talk about propositions because it's alone, he knows that right. truth. Um, yeah. Okay. So, oh yeah. So I'm going to use a uh, proposition like language because I don't know how to go. Does the divine idea have a truth value? Um, uh, but the di- divine ideas, which I guess that's if you're throwing propositions into the mind of God and drawing on the divine ideas tradition, uh, then yet yeah, you'd be saying, yeah, these propositions have a truth value. It's a con- and it's a contingently true, but if that's is, but it, the, the what I'm ontologically reducing it to is just a divine idea. Okay, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So if we go with that, we got God alone, and when, then we still have God has some contingent knowledge because His act of knowing uh, that truth seems like that's going to have to be contingent too. I'd like to say that it's true that God knows there are no zebras. And the truth situation or truth conditions required for that is God's existence and no zebras existing. And that's satisfied. And so the proposition, God knows there are no zebras, is true. The, the truth satisfaction conditions are met in a world mm-hmm. with only God. So you don't need like another thing, another act there by which God knows. God and God alone is the, the thing you need there to get that true. And if you have God together with zebras, the proposition is no longer true. And so God doesn't know it. Okay, so would we still have God having contingent knowledge? Like, like his, like the act of knowing is going to be contingent. Well, I don't want the. I I would like to just stricken act of knowing from all discourse when we're talking about contingent things when God's oh. alone. Because if He's really alone, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be letting distinct acts that aren't God into the equation. Yeah, I guess I don't know how to do that. Given if God's really free, uh like in a two and then a three and then all the sort of stories that all, all sorts of different uh, theological systems tell about how God decides what universe to create uh, and which providential uh, plan to, to put, come up, come up with. Like, it seems all those sort of stories that we build into all the different theological systems, it seems like God's going to have to have some kind of active knowing. And by active knowing, you do mean a contingent entity that's not identical with God that God well, has and God creates? Well, I don't want to say he creates uh, his ideas. And uh, and I don't want to say that, um, yeah, when he performs a new action, like he's creating an act. Because I don't, I don't think, I don't think acts, I don't, I don't know. It feels weird to say you, you create an act. You perform an action. I don't know if you create an action. Um, so I'm trying to think like a consistent classical theist here. So when I see the classical theist go, yeah, he's got this knowledge of his own essence and this knowledge of his own will. And the reason he's able to know, or the explanation for how he's able to know all that contingent stuff is because he knows his will, which is identical to himself. And the will's contingent, 
but it's also identical to himself. Because otherwise you're going to not have God all alone. So I'm trying to keep all those claims in here. And if we get rid of that, then I don't know how we can get the rest of the classical story. Yeah, the, the piece I would recommend excising for a classical mm-hmm. theist is the part where you say there's a contingent act of will of God's. I'm not saying okay. God wills everything necessarily. I'm saying that if you if you say there's a thing and it exists mm-hmm. and it's contingent and it's not God and God's alone, you've already got a pickle. One of those things has to go. Oh, okay. That's going to be interesting. So, okay. So when, again, because I think you, you work with Gloria Frost, don't you? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So I don't want to keep talking about her. And then she's like, why is it? Why is people down the hall keep mentioning my name? Um, so, <laughs> so when Gloria tells me, uh, you know, like, hey, um, what grounds the contingency of the world on this classical view is the contingency of God's will. It sounds like you're getting rid of that. And then I'm like, okay, well, now how do I ground the contingency of the world on the classical view? Because it seems like I've given up something that the classical tradition was usually pretty big on. Mm-hmm. That thing could be extrinsic to God. So his act okay. of will can be outside of God. Mm-hmm. And then if you're talking about the creation of an actual world, then you've got a plus one there already. It's not just God alone. So there's a, there's already stuff there to maneuver with. There's already God plus other stuff. Let some of that other stuff be what you call the contingent act of will. Okay. So you want an extrinsic action. Is that is that the, is that the move? Yeah, it's an ex- extrinsic act of will. So okay. it's not a thing in God, and it's not. Uh, it's not. Yeah, go on. No, no, I was, I was just, I was just, I was just going. Uh-huh, like as this what I was following, because I'm not sure if I oh, quite okay. follow yet. Yeah, because here's the problem: I've never fully understood these extrinsic actions. And then I should have, I should have brought this quote with me. Um, so, because Grant and I are contributing to this uh, Divine Simplicity Five Views book, and I found this nice, sweet mm-hmm. quote from Aquinas saying. How dare we say uh, that God's actions are extrinsic? That like that just that just that's no, that's not what we're saying. Um, and I should have brought that up, uh, prepared to, to bring this up. Um, and I'm like, whoo, okay. So Aquinas, who I thought was kind of like the classical theist, and he's saying oh, extrinsic action that's not that's not good. Uh, and then when he talks about God's providence and all his providential actions, his creative actions, he's like, those are all identical to God. And I'm like, well, it can't be extrinsic if it's identical to God because you're not identical to things that are extrinsic. So I don't understand what this extrinsic thing is that's floating around. Yeah, the act of will that's extrinsic to God. Like, so God wills to create Tim Paul. Mm-hmm. And you say, what is the act of will by which God does that? Well, one thing people point to could be me and my relation of dependency on God. Mm-hmm. That could be the truth maker for the claim God contingently wills to create Tim Paul. Okay. So I had, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I had two. Uh, two responses prepared for this argument. One oh, was good. questioning uh, whether there's consistency in claiming all of one through eight. Uh, but mm-hmm. there was a second one too, and I'm, ha- I'm happy to stay on A8 or move on to the second response. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and go to the next one uh, so we can make sure we got time for all the other arguments too. Okay. This next one uh, is concerning the, the derivation from nine through 11. Mm-hmm. So you say God has some contingent knowledge in A8. And in A9, you tell us nothing God contingently has can be essential to God. Okay? So it yeah. follows, I think I think A10 is supposed to follow from A9, that God's contingent knowledge is accidental to God. So it can't yeah. be essential, maybe a tacit premise, everything is either essential or accidental. Can't be mm, essential. Yeah, that's good. So that's it's got to be accidental. Okay. So my fear here is this. You go from A10 uh, 
his knowledge is accidental to God, to A11, so he has an accident. Mm -hmm. And consider a couple of counterexamples to that claim. So here the move is from something is accidental to a thing to the thing has an accident. Mm -hmm. So consider uh, one example here. So here I'm sitting and I'm talking, and my sitting accident is inhering in me, and my speaking accident is inhering in me. And so my sitting accident is, you might say, coding. It's here along with a speaking accident in me. I've got both accidents. They're both in the same person. So they're both co-inhering with the other. Now, my sitting accident doesn't essentially co-inhere with a speaking accident, because after all, I was just sitting here being quiet for an awful long time before I started talking. So um, it's not essential to my sitting accident that it co-inhere with a speaking accident. But I don't want to have to say in virtue of that that my sitting accident has to have an accident itself, the accident of co-inhering with a speaking accident. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that are non-essential but don't require accidents in the thing in question. Uh, A second example, then I'll let you go. I'll let you respond. Consider my son, Henry. Uh, Suppose he's praying for me right now. Well, Henry's praying for Tim isn't essential to Tim. Uh, You know, I've existed without him praying for me for an awful long time before that. So I can exist and he not pray for me. So his praying for me is non-essential to me. It's accidental to me. But that doesn't require me to have some accident, some real new feature of mine in virtue of which it's true. The contingent truth, Henry is praying for Tim, is true without any new ontological foundation in me for that truth. The change in reality that undergirds the coming to be of the truth of the predication Henry is praying for Tim is all on the Henry side of the equation. And yet there is something newly, really true of me. The relational predication Tim is being prayed for by Henry is really newly, non-essentially true, even though there's no accident in me of virtue of which it's true. So all that to say, the step from A10, where we acknowledge it's accidental, to the step at A11, where we have to claim that it's an accident in God, I think is a dubious step. I'd like to know what inference form or maybe tacit premises undergird going from A10 to A11. Okay, good. Do we still need the screen? Because uh, I feel like I'm staring at my at my screen and I can't see anything. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, let me switch over really quick here so I can actually see everybody. Okay. Um, okay, so I want to make sure I'm following this. So the first move is to go... Uh, there are some cases where... You shouldn't just predicate a bunch of accidents because you're going to have accidents upon accidents upon accidents. And that that's just silly. Come on. Uh, my accidental yep. property doesn't have an accidental property. Come on. Uh, and then the second one is, is it kind of like appealing to something like mixed relations? Is that the idea? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't need that whole machinery to do it. You just sure. need to be able to say, at least in one case, a proposition goes from being false to being true about a thing without that thing gaining an accident in virtue of which it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let me start with the accidental accidents. Cause that, yeah, I think that's right. That does sound like <laughs> sound really silly. Uh, it seems weird to say that my accidents also have accidents. Um, yeah. And so I guess that'd be fine to be there. There could be cases where uh, my sitting and my speaking obviously do not have to coincide. And do I want to say that the accident of sitting is also has an accident of being coextensive with my act, my accident of speaking sounds weird. Yeah, that's fine. Um, And then when I go with the case of mixed relations, again, I want to say, okay, that seems fine. There could be cases where you don't get an accident when things change. What I want to say, though, is when I'm looking at the case of creation and knowing, 
these are not cases where I can make that kind of move. And here's why. The classical examples of real relations are knower to known and cause to effect. And God is, in this case, is the knower and also the causer because he's the one causing the universe to be. So in, so if those are real relations, those are classic examples of real relations. When we look at something like the aloneness argument, since we're looking at God knowing and God doing, those are going to have to be real relations. So the mixed relations move, I don't think should work here. Um, this also undermines all the, all the cases where we want to have the uh, mixed relations stuff. Uh, uh, so Thomas Ward has a really good paper on this where he points out Aquinas wants all these mixed relations, but the classic examples of real relations are knower and known and cause and effect. And we have to say that about creation. We have to say that about omnipresence. We have to say it and so on and so on with our doctrine of God. So I don't, so I feel like what I could say is go, Tim, everything you brought up, totally right. But when I look at the case of uh, what would the case in, in question, it's not going to work here. I don't know if that makes any sense. I see what you're saying. I wonder though, how you get the inference to work. You've got a hmm. so in front of the premise or in front of yeah, the immediate claim. And I don't know how you get from the previous claims to that A11 claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me think about this. Okay. So God's contingent knowledge is accidental to God. So God has an accident. Well, okay. If I go with the classic examples of what a real relation is and what, and how you just normally get accidents, that's how you're going to get the inference. So the two counter examples you gave of being like, yeah, okay, sure. Like they don't always follow, but those aren't analogous to the case in point of not doing anything, doing something, not knowing something, knowing something. Those are all going to entail, those are really standard, uh, entailments to getting an accident. So I'm not sitting, the one that I'm sitting, no, definitely got the accident of sitting. Uh, those all seem really straightforward and don't seem like they, they fall into the categories of the counter examples you gave. So what, what, what's the, what's the inference form being used to get from A11 to A12? Oh, uh, I guess you could, how do I do this? Um, all cases of form such and such entail an accident. And you're like, well, I've got some other cases. And I'm like, well, those aren't of such and such. They're of mm-hmm. this and that. Uh, I hate that language. I hate that. Um, uh, I don't know how to make it more precise, though. Okay. So you're saying maybe it's the case that all cases of contingent knowing require some accident on the part of the knower. And this is a yeah. case of contingent knowing. So yeah. God has an accident. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for the classical theist, the thing to deny is that that bridge premise you used or that I just said, you didn't use it, but I said um, that all cases of contingent knowing are cases of having an accident. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you might say in all cases of creation, maybe you'd want to say that maybe not, but I'm not sure. But in any case that I think is where the target will be then for the classical theist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So all cases. Oh, okay. So here's what would be interesting then to see. So, so say this is, this is the right move to make. And that seems, it seems like the right strategy at this point to make when I start talking about this, God has no real relations to creation. I feel like that's going to undermine that, that entire uh, like Augustinian Thomistic strategy, because because you're because <laughs> we're relying on um, we're having basically having to reject the classical accounts of what it what real relations are, which is nowhere unknown and, and cause and effect. Uh, and so if we attack this bridge principle in this way, it seems like okay, we're rejecting that. And then I'm like, well, now I don't know how to even begin to formulate or justify the Augustinian move of going, God's not really related to the universe because I've rejected the, the the standard account of what a real relation is. And now I can't go, okay, here's what a real relation is. And here's what a non-real relation is because now I've lost the, here's what the real relation is. And so I'm like, Ooh, 
So now Augustine's going to be like, oh crap, Tim, that was really cool. But now he took away all the stuff I want to do to like save timelessness <laughs> and all these other things. Well, least, I, I don't know. I don't know, know if Augustine have... would say that. He'd probably say it more like poetically, but. <laughs> I do have a, a point about your next argument about real relations. Mm. And so um, okay, good. we could either foreground it to here and talk more about real relations here, or maybe just keep it for then. And when we talk about real relations, I'll, I'll try to give a case where you can keep real relations and uh, an analysis of them that doesn't require you to say, if God continually knows something, then God has an accident. Yeah, I'd say uh, go ahead Jordan, and go real relations how much now, did you want personally. to speak? Okay, um, I, you know, Jordan's got an invested interest in this. Yeah, so I, I'd love to hear the real relations bit, because that's, as, as you guys have been talking about this, that's the thing that I've been wondering about. Can we not give a different account of real relations? And because, I mean, if... What's the, there's like one monograph on relations. It's one of the few books I have in my house right now. Look, um, I'm moving. So all my books are in a storage unit, except for these. This is my one shelf of the things I use. And it's the, (laughs) it's, it's an edited volume, the metaphysics of relations. And to me, like Jeff Brower and I think John Heil and some others, they kind of go like a, uh, it's not nominalistic, but it, a way of just denying that relations have really any separate ontological value. They just kind of reduce to the truth makers of that thing. So relations themselves aren't like ontological bits out in the universe. So I've wondered oh. if if we go with that and say, you know, let's just take an example of, you know, I, Gandalf is taller than Frodo. Mm-hmm. Um, that taller than relation, it's not like it's really adding any on, ontology to either Gandalf or or Frodo, it just reduces to the simple fact that you have two existing objects. So maybe it's, you know, if you have God and some object of knowledge out there, whether it's me existing right now, it's not like it's adding something to God. It's not, it's, it's, it's not an accident. It just reduces to the fact that there's two things there. I haven't thought this through totally, but it's been something that's in my brain that I've wondered, mm-hmm. is this some way to sort of circumvent this? And Tim, I have no idea if that's anywhere near where you're going, but this is something I would be curious about. So I'd like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Tim, did you want to get away in sure. on this? Sure. Uh, I was going to ask you later what you mean by a real relation. I'm happy to give my own account first, if you'd like, of what real relations are. And then yeah, we, can, we can circle back if you want. Yeah. So there's a lot of confusion on the question of what a real relation is. Uh, sometimes when people talk about it, it sounds like they intend to distinguish real relations from phony or fictive relations. Either God is really, actually, honestly related to something, or it's a fiction that we say that he is, but it really isn't. But this can't be what they mean by their discussion of relations. This is the medievals I'm thinking of primarily. After all, they talk about mixed relations, which are relations that are real in one direction and not real in the other, in their sense of the word not real. And how can it be that one relation is really, actually, honestly there one way, but merely a fiction in the other? So I don't think we should think of it like that. Instead, consider some contingent relational claim. I talked about Henry earlier. I'll go back to him again. My son Henry is praying for me. Henry is praying for Tim. In that claim, there's a subject of the relational claim. The relational proposition, Henry is praying for Tim, has its subject as Henry, because he's in the subject part of the sentence. And you've got the term, that is the object, the term, Tim. And what's the foundation? the ontological difference maker, which accounts for why sometimes Henry and Tim exist and the claim Henry is praying for Tim is false, but other times they exist and it's true. 
The question is, what's the difference maker to make it true? And importantly for our conversation, where is it? Sometimes the foundation is in both. So for instance, the claim Henry is as tall as Tim, this is kind of like the example you just gave, Jordan, Henry is as tall as Tim, requires each guy to have a specific accidental feature of height. And we know it's accidental because I wasn't always this height, this tall, and Henry surely wasn't always as tall as the giant is now. Such is a mutual relation, since the foundation is found in both. The ontological difference maker is found in both. And incidentally, the ontological conditions for that relation are so very close to being true. I have to stand almost on my tippy toes every time we stand back to back. But he's, he's almost there, but I got him still. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, as with my initial example, the foundation is only found in one of the relata. Henry is, has a certain mental feature. And because of that, the relational statement, Henry is praying for Tim, has become true. The foundation is in the subject, and so Henry is praying for Tim is a real relation. Consider the correlated truth of Tim is being prayed for by Henry. That too is really, honestly, actually true. But the foundation is not in Tim. Tim, that's me. I could remain exactly the same from time one to time two. Yet the predication go from being false to being true, only in virtue of something external to me changing how it is. Henry goes from not praying for me at T1 to praying for me at T2. The foundation is not in the subject. Oh, sorry. So uh, in that case, the correlated case where Tim is being prayed for by Henry, in that case, the foundation is not in the subject, it's not in me, but the foundation exists. And so this is the true relation of reason. I think that's all they mean by these uh, mystifying terms. They mean, hey, is the predication, the relational predication, A is related to B, true? Okay. Is the thing that makes the ontological difference found ontologically speaking in A, or is it found ontologically speaking in B? And I think what the medievals wanted to say, uh, I think, Ryan, you think they can't do it consistently, but I think this is what they're trying to say, that if you keep God, like, you know, keep God front and center in your mind, that the ontological difference maker for every true contingent predication concerning God isn't going to be found in the divine substance or the divine being itself. The ontological difference maker will always be over there somewhere in, in on the creation side of things. And because of that, uh, it will always be a relation of reason from God to world and a real relation from world to God. That's what I think they're after there. So the, mm. the claim is the thing that you guys have to keep us honest about is, hey, did you just put a doodad in God? Did you just add some sort of ontological difference maker on the divine side of the of the scales if you did you know hit the theological buzzer you screwed up so that's i think what they're after right. with with mixed and real relations mm -hmm. no i think that's absolutely right i think that's a really good uh, explanation of what's going on uh, because when you look at the classic examples that they give they are giving these there's nothing in there's got to be some kind of foundation in order for the relationship to be real. If it's one trend not going the other way, that's absolutely right. Uh, and then you're right to point out too that, that classical theism cannot consistently uh, maintain these sort of because, again, the classical examples are cause and effect and no one knows. 
And one of the things we need to say to do Christian theology, we have to say God caused the universe to exist. God knows the universe exists. And then when we have to try to talk about, say, omnipresence, that's God's knowledge and his power causally sustaining and knowing all the stuff that's happening right now. And I'm like, okay, well, those are all the big, great examples of real relations. So we cannot consistently start talking about, oh, there's no real relations here. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I think you think you're right. Yeah. I think you explained it accurately. And then you're also right to say, I'm, I'm going to go, no, I'm sorry. That's not consistent with other things we need to say in our theology. If you want to go full Aristotelian and go, God didn't cause the universe to exist and God doesn't even know the universe exists. Then I think you could go, yeah, cool. God's not really related to the universe. That's fine. But as Christians, we got to go, no, no, I really, I really need him to be the efficient cause of the universe. And I really do need him to be the one who keeps in existence from moment to moment as Colossians tells us. And I really do need, you know, all the other biblical claims. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, that's, I think it's the sticking point for me. Yeah. I wonder the classical examples you've mentioned are acting, causing mm -hmm. and knowing. And I think mm -hmm. you're right, but I think the typical examples, at least the ones I'm familiar with, aren't, they're always examples of some creature knowing or causing some other creature. And so, um, I can grant that the classical examples often, or maybe yeah, often, not always, but often have that form, but deny that they meant to apply them to God. And in fact, I think that when they explicitly talk about God, they explicitly cancel the sort of uh, universal implication you want, where any case of knowing is a case of real relation and any case of causing is a case of real relation. Uh, I don't know. So I was looking at um, this passage in Augustine's uh, treatise on the Trinity. Uh, is, is it book five or book six? I should have brought this up. Um, I've cited it in a bunch of my work. So Augustine is worried about this problem of relational change. Uh, and so what he calls it are relational titles. What do we do with God's relational titles, like Lord, Savior, this kind of stuff? Yeah. And so when he's going through these examples, he's like, okay, so when we've got this like uh, master-servant relationship, ooh, yeah, that's that's real on both ends. And he gives and then he gives all the sort of story that you tell about mixed relations and whatnot. And he's like, yeah, that's what we got to say. So that way, when we talk about Creator, we talk about Lord, we talk about Redeemer, uh, and James Arminius goes, Judge of all men. Uh, you know, all these kind of examples. We got to say those are really talking about us and not really talking about God because there's no accidents in God. Uh, and so that's always how I see the conversation is within that kind of context a of a worry about these relational titles is what Augustine calls them, um, or these relational predicates. And in order to say God doesn't have these accidents. And then w then they'll give the case of the, they'll just kind of give that the case of here's what the classic account of mixed relations is. And they'll go, yeah, nowhere to known uh, cause to effect. We know those are real relations. And, and then kind of somehow flip it as if the example of I know that Socrates is really cool, uh, but I'm really related to Socrates. Socrates is not really related to me. And then they'll act like Socrates, like this is that Socrates is supposed to be analogous to God in this case. And then they never really seem to explain much further beyond that in the case of Augustine or Peter Lombard and, and Aquinas. And I'm like, well, hang on, you missed something really obvious here. Why should I think that Socrates is analogous to God in this case? Since God is the one who is supposed to be like this universal divine causality, like causing every single thing that that's happening. Uh, I, and God's knowing all this. This, this doesn't seem like it's analogous at all to Socrates. So I think the problems I'm pointing out are things that did not get considered or fully developed or thought through in a lot of the major uh, medieval thinkers. So the move that you're wanting to, to make on their behalf is interesting. I just think it's one they didn't even consider as far as I can tell based on the textual evidence. But I think it's one worth consider, uh, considering to go, Maybe not all cases of of knower to known, and maybe not all cases of cause to effect are real relations. But I don't I, know what to do with uh, it. I, I, 
I know you know of this text, but I'll just say it for others mm-hmm. who oh, might yeah. want to look at what Thomas says about it. Uh, in the Summa, uh, question 13 of the first part, Article 7, he talks about the, the very thing you're talking about now, Daytran from Augustine, uh, Chapter 7, about those temporally loaded relational claims, like God is creator of man. And there, I think he gives a, a neat discussion where he does make the sort of distinctions you're looking for. Maybe not the way you want, but mm-hmm. you could, I'm just giving it to the audience. Maybe go look there. Yeah. Uh, John DeRosa just put it into the chat. It looks oh, like. there we go. Yeah. Excellent. Jordan, where do you want this to go now? Because I know we're coming up on the first hour. Yeah. So we are coming up on the first hour. And since our two topics are a little bit um, disjointed, I don't know if, if you guys who are watching want to go ahead and chat some questions about this particular thing. And we'll talk about them for 15 or 20 minutes before we shift over to talking conciliar Christology. So if you guys are watching, I know I've seen some of these questions come in. So um, I've got one that just came on that's relevant to this. And I think I can show it here on the screen. Yep. Could uh, a relation of reason or a mental relation a la Suarez between two persons involve other kinds of relations? Uh, so, Tim, I don't know if you have thoughts on this or if we need to jump in. Okay. Yeah. So, Tim, what are you thinking? I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. This is, that's fair, I, don't either. I know. Uh, so, you have a relation of, rela- a relation of reason. It's between two persons. Uh, does it involve other kinds of relations? I guess I guess there could be other relations involved there too. Um, I don't know if the relation of reason itself would involve other relations, but you could have concomitant other relations there too. Like if Henry is praying for me and punching me, then he'd, you'd have two relations there. One's a relation of reason that I have, and the other is the causal effect I have of the, of the lad punching me. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the relation of reason itself involves within it, so to speak, another um, another relation. Yeah, that, that seems right to me. Yeah. All right. Let's see. What else do I have in here? Because I know there's been a couple of questions in here. Um, so if you guys watching, chat a question and I'll put it in here. Um, or we can just. Has anyone defined question. creation ex nihilo yet? Is something somebody has asked. Oh, I yeah. I think nobody has defined it. Yeah, Brian, did you oh, define it or just give examples? Yeah, no, I, the 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 quote from Sam Sam Liebens at the beginning like, that just is the definition, the standard definition. Okay, is okay. you've got God all alone and nothing else, and then and and then and then you've got God creating all the stuff. So you've got God all alone is what emphasizes there's no pre-existent material. Uh, uh, so this is what's contrasted with um, what you can call a doctrine of eternal creation, which was very popular and predates Christianity, which is you've got God plus all this cosmic stuff. Uh, and either God just emanating it from all eternity or somehow freely volitionally bringing it about from all eternity. That's what a lot of contemporary panentheists want to say. And that's what um, some different um, medieval uh, Muslims want to say, like Averroes uh, seems like he's saying. So it's a, it's, a, it's a creation. It's an actual creation. It's not an emanation. It's a free act, but it's all eternal. And Proclus mm-hmm. wants to say the same thing. He's, he, Proclus goes, well, whatever God is eternally doing, if God's eternally creating, eternal causes have eternal effects. So the universe is going to have to be eternal. You Christians with your crazy uh, doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that makes no sense whatsoever because you can't say God's eternally creating and then the universe just is only like temporally, like finite in the past. Like, no, come on. That makes no sense. No, no. Uh, and he's got more arguments beyond that. But that's, yeah, that's that's the big idea. So do you think creation ex nihilo is true? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's yeah. part of your theology. Okay. Yeah. Defined so it, Liebens defines it? 
Yeah. So I've been, one of the things I'm doing in this current book project on uh, the divine time maker is trying to trace down all the history of these different doctrines of creation throughout Western and Eastern philosophical theology and going, okay, here's what these claims are. Here's what the panentheists are rejecting because they're rejecting creation ex nihilo. They don't like this claim that God is able to just freely bring about a universe uh, or just re refrain because they think that's going to exacerbate the problem of evil. Um, they think it's mm -hmm. easier to to come, kind of deal with the problem of evil if God's just always kind of bound to uh, deal with some cosmic stuff. Uh, so uh, so there's, a, there's a lot of different moving parts in, with what you can do theologically with this. And what I would ultimately like to do at some point is try to go, here's all the main arguments against creation ex nihilo. Here's how you defend them. Um, but at the moment, okay. I'm just trying to catalog all the different arguments. Yeah. The, the definition of creation ex nihilo I thought you gave included the claim that at some point, prior was used read that as you see fit. but at some point yeah. prior to creation uh it was god and god alone that existed yes so yes. you accept the aloneness of god as well yeah okay uh, so what i would do is different though than what this so what you get from augustine and then a bunch of people later on in uh within the islamic tradition too will go let's make that um a timeless state of affairs prior to creation uh, whereas I'm going to go, eh, let's make a temporal. Come on. Why, like, what, 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 like, what was God doing before the universe? It's a very literal before. Well, he's plotting to take over the world. That's, that's, you know, that's what the apostle Paul tells us. So, uh, so I want to take it, uh, in a particular way, but, but yeah, I want to throw like the God all alone part. Okay, cool. And I think there was a follow-up and I think it's the answer is yes, but I just want to make sure you guys would agree with that. Yeah. So one of the things that distinguishes classical theism, neoclassical theism and open theism because the, they're all going to affirm Christian ex nihilo, what distinguishes them from panentheism and pantheism is in part creation ex nihilo and then God's freedom to create or not create. Because the panentheists want to go, no, uh, just no to both of those. Uh, God does not create out of nothing, and God is necessitated to create uh, a universe of some sort. Cool. There was uh, Parker. <laughs> If you don't, if you don't watch Parker Fences, <laughs> go check it out. I don't know if you guys want to jump into this area. This, I'm cool talking about that, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. If you guys want this, I'll let you jump on it. If not, there's been some other questions through the chat, but I thought I'd give I, Parker a shout out. Uh, Tim, I can't remember. Do you do you affirm analogical predication? I always forget. Do I think that there is such a thing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Do you want to say like Tim, most cases of? Yeah, or go ahead, Jordan. What would you say analogical predication is? Because I think there's a little bit of confusion, at least to me, when I see people talk about analogy, what, what they're really trying to do, what, what the difference is between analogy, univocity, um, and which one's actually at work in the example. So in the example, God is loving and I am loving. Is that analogy and why would that be analogy? Yeah, well... I'm happy to do this uh, as long as we have time at the end to come at some point to come back to the two sons worry. So uh, mm. sure. <clears throat> um, so here's how I think of it. Uh, first, just some definitions. A term is used univocally just in case the same term is used more than once. And it has the exact same definition each time it's used. So Tim is a man. Ryan is a man. Man is used in the same sense both times. Or what I have on my left foot's a shoe. What I have on my right foot's a shoe. Shoe is used in the exact same sense both times. It's used equivocally. You didn't ask about that one, but I'm going to give it to you for free, extra credit. Uh, it's used equivocally when you have the very same term used two different times, and it doesn't have the same meaning both times. 
like bat the flying thing and bat the thing you hit with. I say the sentence, the page in the cape took the page to the bank on the bank of the cape. I've there equivocated three times using six terms or three terms, however you want to count it. Uh, if you think about it for a little bit, you'll figure it out, but I'm not going to tell you that's extra credit. So there it's using it in wholly different terms. Well, you might think what's left if you've got univocal saying it with the same meaning and equivocal saying it with different meanings, what do you have left? Well, there's a sense in which you can have some of the same and some different. So Aristotle's example was um, the man is healthy. And there you might think healthy means in proper biological functioning condition. That's just spitballing. But something like that is what I mean when I say I'm healthy. And he says urine is healthy. That's kind of strange. But what he means there is this. The urine is a sign that the animal is in proper biological functioning condition. And if you look at the man is healthy and urine is healthy, you'll see that they're different. They're not exactly the same because one includes is a sign of and the other one doesn't. But you'll see they both include some large overlap between the two, you know, uh, a biological functioning organism in proper condition or whatever it was. That's included in both. Okay, that's analogical predication where you've got some focal element included in both, but some difference as well. Now, how does that apply to God and God's loving? Well, kind of in this way, when I say God is loving and I say Tim is loving, typically when you think Tim is loving, you think a whole set of things follow on this. Like when Tim loves Henry, you might think a whole set of things are proper conditions of my love for Henry. I provide him food and nourishment. You know, I make sure he's warm at night. That's not part of the essence of what love is, but it's something concomitant, something that most often comes with love of offspring. And when I say God is loving, I don't necessarily mean that stuff. So there's some picking away of some elements of what we typically mean by love among humans and offspring. Um, there's picking away of bits, and then there's turning up to 11 other bits, you know, like God's like Tim, but just way better. So in that sense, I think you have an analogical predication. You're using the term in slightly different ways with some underlying focal meaning, but picking out the impurities and ramping up the perfections. Okay. So I, I do want to ask a question. Sorry, Ryan. Um, mm -hmm. When it comes to that example, is it safe or correct to still say that there is some sort of like univocal core that's going on? We're still talking about whether it's, you know, it's a willing of the good. Maybe we're stripping away all these other things, the human stuff, all the other stuff that's, that is not proper to attribute to God or proper to attribute to me if we're talking about God. So I could give an example of I love baseball and I love my wife. To me, that seems like we could say that's an analogical predication in some sense because there's stuff that we want to strip away in both both cases. But we're still talking about something that can bridge this gap. We're talking about a concept that while not identical in every sense, has something that we would say, yes, that is what we're talking about here. Does, does that make sense? Yes. So I think of it like this. Um, take a disjunctive term, like um, left-handed or right-handed. Now, I'm right-handed. I don't know about you guys. It looks like, Ryan, you were right-handed because you were holding mm -hmm. your pen in your right hand. But um, take a term that applies to me and doesn't apply to you. In terms, it applies to you and doesn't apply to me, and then disjoin them together to get like one claim, left-handed or right-handed. Now, there's a sense in which you might satisfy it in one way, and I satisfy it in another way. And neither one of us satisfies the other one that the other person satisfies. Now, a question arises, do we satisfy them univocally? 
Well, I mean, the ontology is different for how you satisfy it. Uh, you can make it even weirder, like has a sitting accident or is identical to the color blue. You know, uh, we, I, we satisfy them in different ways. Some people have argued that analogical predication comes down to the satisfaction conditions for the terms employed. And the way that God satisfies love is different than the way I satisfied the predicate love. Just like the way that you satisfy the predicate Jordan is left-handed, if you are, I don't know, is different than the way I satisfy the predicate is right-handed, even if we both satisfy the predicate is left-handed or right-handed. That was a long way of answering your question. I think there is some, um, some phrase you can use such that it applies to both things. The same phrase applies to both, me and God. The difference is the way in which we satisfy the truth conditions for the phrase employed. And that's what people typically mean by the analogy of being. And um, some people bring that into analogy of predication as well. I think that's fine to do if you want to, as long as we're clear on what exactly we mean when we say that um, I love in a different way that God loves. I mean that I satisfy the conditions in a different way than God does. I have an accident, for instance, by which I do it. And on my view, God doesn't have an accident um, by which he does it. That's helpful. So there's an hour left and I do want to give time to two sons worry because I mm -hmm. think that's pretty fun and interesting. So we can circle back to these discussions if we have time at the end, but let's go ahead and make the adjustment. Ryan, I think you had, you put together a formal argument because you've got several chapters on this. Um, so if, if you want to know more about Ryan's argument on this, I think you've got it in what that like phys Christian physicalism book. And then you've got a new got one. A couple in places. The, there you go. Yeah. It's a yeah, so the, temptation. Yeah. That's the most recent one. Um, and then I've got a version of it in the, uh, in the physicalism, the Christian physicalism question mark. Uh, so I guess you have to say yeah. Christian physicalism. Um, and then in the, was the last issue of uh, Philosophia Christi, I think I have a slightly uh, a modified version of that because someone pointed out a really obvious hole in my physicalism argument. Uh, Keith Hested and I was like, oh gosh, I need to fix that. So, um, so there's a, there's a modified version of it in, uh, I think it's the most recent issue of Philosophia Christi or maybe the one before that. I don't know. Um, oh. yeah. So, uh, let me share my screen again here. So it's okay. It's already sharing. Sorry. Um, bring this up here. So I got to, I normally don't make these PowerPoint presentations, but Tim inspired me to. So I'm like, all right, let's go with it. <laughs> okay. So this is the two sons worry. So, uh, let me start again with just some assumptions that are really common among the church fathers. And so I'll call them, uh, you know, like C for church fathers. So C1, the self is a rational mind or soul. Uh, and then C2, a human person is a rational mind slash soul employing a human body. And so what I'm doing there is actually just kind of, this is the language that you see from people like Origen, Basil, uh, Cyril, and a bunch of others. They'll use this kind of phrase of like, you are a soul. You are like, that's what you are. You are a rational mind. And you are human because you are employing a human body. Uh, and then Fred Sanders has this really funny uh, statement where he says, if you've somehow like, you know, you're living in, in, in the contemporary world and you're somehow like not embarrassed to be a substance dualist, then you have this shared metaphysical assumption this, uh, with, the, with, the, with the early church fathers. So you should be able to understand what they're up to with their Christology because of this. Uh, now, C3, this is a really common one uh, amongst all the people, uh, is to say there's this one son rule. Uh, Jesus Christ is one person and not two. You only want God the Son to be the only person there. You don't want there to be God the Son and then there to be this human son in there. That's two people. That's two too many. We don't want that. We want one son. And then C4, in becoming incarnate is Jesus Christ, God the Son assumes a rational soul in a human body. This is a very common assumption. 
Now, there's lots of different versions of the Two Sons Worry that predate uh, Chalcedon that go re- really, really early back. Uh, but here's one. This is a version that comes from this guy named Eunomius that I think has got some teeth to it. And so here's how I want to articulate Eunomius' version of it. So E for Eunomius. So E1, a human person is a rational soul and a human body. And that's just, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's the assumption, C2. E2, if the son assumed a soul and a body, the son assumed a human person. E3, the son assumed a soul and a body. Well, thus, the son assumed a human person. Ooh, okay, that's, that's not good. We don't want that. And that, Now, if the son assumed a human person, then there are two people, two sons in Jesus Christ. Ooh, this is not looking good. Now, uh, thus, there are two people, two sons in Jesus Christ. Now, E7, if there are two people, two sons in Jesus Christ, then the one son rule is false. E8, thus the one son rule is false. So that's that's not good. So here's what most people want to do. They usually want to attack E2. They want to go, I want to reject E2. And so this is the part where I'm going to come into the story, because I think there are lots of different attempts to, to reject E2, uh, and I don't find them satisfying, because they look indistinguishable from Nestorianism. And since Nestorianism was condemned, you don't want your view to look almost identical to you know, Nestorius' view. And so here are the two kind of versions that I, two, two uh, brief uh, replies I want to look at. So the first is ineffable mystery. And then the second is the assumption relation. So uh, let me start with E2 with the uh, in, ineffable mystery move. So the hypostatic union is said to be ineffably mysterious, in which case we have no way of knowing what the difference is between orthodoxy and Nestorianism. And you could cheekily say, you know, the orthodox view is just whatever is not Nestorian. Uh, but I don't think that really tells me anything about what the Orthodox view is. And this is going to be a problem since on the surface, it really looks like the Orthodox view is identical to Nestorianism. And even Nestorius himself said that the Orthodox view is the one that he always held. When he, After Chalcedon came out, he was like, yeah, that's what I've been saying all along, guys. So, so merely asserting, look, I swear, I've got, you know, my view is unspeakably different from Nestorius's. I don't think that's going to help cast off the appearance of heresy. Now, you might be tempted to say that the hypostatic union is a primitive notion. So you might say that when people like Cyril keep playing the mystery card in order to avoid like really obvious entailment relations, you could say, well, Cyril's not being intellectually dishonest. Cyril's not playing hard to get. Uh, you know, when he's playing the mystery card, he's not doing anything corrupt or cheeky. Instead, you could say Cyril is just claiming that the hypostatic union is a primitive notion that is not further analyzable. I've got two concerns about this. Uh, the first is I don't think this is going to be insufficient to ward off the appearance of Nestorianism because I don't think this is an accurate representation of Cyril. So we know that Cyril often engages in corrupt persuasive tactics, like holding a council before his opponents are even able to arrive to defend themselves. And Cyril is known to have bribed the emperor. He even sent people to constantly shout insults at the emperor in order to get his way. So we know for a fact that Cyril is often engaging in corrupt and intellectually dishonest tactics. And then people in Cyril's own day, this is, this is a quote from some people in his own day, they declared that Cyril was a monster born and educated to destroy the church. So Cyril didn't make a lot of friends. So in light of this, I think it's safe to say that Cyril's constant abuse of the mystery card, uh, abuse is uh, what I heard Sarah Coakley say once. So the, his constant abuse of the mystery card, it's not entirely intellectually honest. And then second, when some notion is primitive, it's not further analyzable in terms of some more fundamental concepts, but the character of the concept can be explicated. And so appeals to ineffable mystery, they are refusals to explicate the character of the concept. 
They are conveniently incomplete stories that allow the player of the mystery card to avoid objections because the player has refused to fully explain the view. And I think this is unfortunate since there are multiple proposals in the contemporary literature that do give a full story that avoids Nestorianism. So what I have in mind are views like Garrett DeWeese, William Lane Craig, and Andrew Loke. And these are proposals that classical theists, they're not willing to accept. So when it comes to deciding, say, between like Andrew Loke's view and some unknowable mystery view, I don't know why I should go with an unknowable mystery view. But let me return to a previous point I made. So the different classical attempts to offer the hypostatic union, I still see them as indistinguishable from Nestorianism, in which case it's a mystery how it is not Nestorian. And so let me give you a couple quick examples of this. So like I pointed out earlier, Nestorius says that Chalcedon, he's like, yeah, that's what I always believed, guys. Come on. Second, the Tome of Leo, which is endorsed to Chalcedon, says that each nature is working in fellowship with each other. And so that's orthodoxy. But Theodore of Mopsustia also says that these two things, they're working in a fellowship too, but he gets condemned. That's, that's a mystery to me. Third, Cyril says that the word indwells his man. That is apparently an orthodox view. But Theodore and Nestorius say the same thing, and it's somehow mysteriously a heresy. Fourth, Theodore says that the relationship between the word and the will of Jesus is like God's relationship with the saints. And that's, you know, that's condemned as a heresy. But then Aquinas says the same thing, uh, and that's, that's, that's orthodoxy. Then fifth, Theodore, Nestorius, and Cyril say that the word assumes the man Jesus by a union of good pleasure. This is a really important phrase, the union of good pleasure. Theodore and Nestorius are condemned as heretics for affirming this union, but Cyril is affirmed as orthodox. Something seems mysterious here to me. And if, it's, if the mystery in your mind is, well, how is this not Nestorian? You're not the only one. Because people in 435, in, in Cyril's own party, they suspected him of being Nestorian. And then after Chalcedon, after the formula of Chalcedon, uh, Chalcedon was made, many people in the East were going, how, how are you guys not Nestorian? Uh, they even referred to it as a sickness uh, because they thought it was still Nestorian. And then the church had to hold a fifth ecumenical council, Constantinople II, in order to rid uh, this theology of any Nestorian tendencies. Because like the Emperor Justinian, he was really annoyed that all these Nestorians were able to affirm the Chalcedonian formula. He's like, no, 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 you guys can't affirm that. And they're like, yeah, we do. And he's like, okay, but we were going to hold a council. We got to get rid of this Nestorian stuff. So that's the first kind of move you can make is ineffable mystery. And I want to go, looks Nestorian, bro. I got to do something else. Here's the final um, one I want to look at. So what you've got here is this thing called the assumption relation. Uh, and this is another way you could try to deny E2. So Peter Lombard, uh, he's, he notices this problem. And so here's the objection that he considers, which is a slightly different version of the two sons worry. It's, it's very much in the same neighborhood. So the objection is, for a person is a rational substance of an individual nature. Thanks, Boethius. But that is what a soul is. And so if the word took a soul, it also took a person. And ooh, okay, now we're going to get, you know, we're going to get too many persons in Jesus. That's bad. But Peter says, well, hang on a second. That, that, that does not follow because the soul is not a person when it is united personally to another thing. But when it is, you know, but only, only when it exists by itself, that's only when it's a person. But that particular soul, it never existed without being joined to another thing. And so it was not the case that taking of that soul was the taking of a person. Okay, here's what I want, I want you to notice here. Here's Lombard's basic strategy. He's like, look, if that soul existed by itself, it'd be a person. Okay, you know, sure, fine. But that soul never came into existence uh, by itself. From the moment it began to exist, it was united to the sun. So therefore, it's not a person. 
That's Peter Lombard's basic strategy. Here's the problem. Theodore of Mopsustia said the exact same thing, and he was condemned as a heretic. He was condemned as a historian. So Nestorius and Theodore, they both make this exact same move in order to avoid the heresy of adoptionism, but they get condemned as Nestorians as a separate heresy. But when, when Peter Lombard says it, it's totally cool. It's all gravy. That's, that's, that's weird. It's very weird. And then one final thing, and this is what, some of the stuff that Tim and I have talked about earlier. I think, I, I think it's, it's going to be really weird to talk about, uh, for a classical theist, to talk about there's this intimate, super awesome, amazing relationship between the son and his human nature if God is not really related to the human nature. Uh, and so Aquinas, he says this, so here's a quote from Aquinas. He says, the union of which we are speaking is a relation which we consider between the divine and the human nature inasmuch as they come together in one person of the son of God. Now, as I said above, you know, because he's talked about this stuff earlier, every relation which we consider between God and the creature is really in the creature by whose change the relation is brought into being, whereas it is not really in God, but only in our way of thinking, since it does not arise from any change in God. And hence, we must say that the union of which we are speaking is not really in God, except only in our way of thinking, but in the human nature, which is a creature, it is really. And so here's the problem I see it as I see it. God the Son is not really related to me. And God the Son's not really related to the human nature of Jesus either. So what is the difference between me and Jesus? And I think it just seems impossible to affirm that there's some intimate, unique, hypostatic union where the Son is not really related to the soul and body of Jesus, except in our way of thinking. That just, I think, makes the incarnation a non-starter. And then notice, I've not even pointed out how this particular version of the assumption relation violates the and in hypostasia theology that's endorsed at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, because I'm trying to keep this shorter. If we can get into that, if you guys want, but I've gone on long enough and I, and I want to make sure that Tim gets a chance to respond to all of this. There we go. Super. Cool. Thanks for that. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. If I disappear randomly, that's because mm -hmm. my wife fell asleep and one of my kids woke up, so I'm going <laughs> to help. There you go. <laughs> I trust you guys to behave yourselves. So, yeah. Tim, I'll let you go. You're a dad first, Jordan. That's good. Let's see. Uh, I have some replies. Ryan has uh, some quotations that I might oh, pull yeah. up later. We'll see if uh -huh. I have to. Uh, I might not have to. So maybe get on the ready, but don't do anything just yet, Ryan. Um, uh, I, some For some reason, my computer isn't set up to let me do it. Sorry about that. That, that is to share my own screen. But I've got responses of two different forms. One is response to just the eunomian presentation of the argument itself. I'm going to argue something's wrong with it. And secondly, I've got three responses to where Ryan says he enters the discussion. You remember he said he, uh, he sees an alleged indistinguishability of the Nestorian views and the hypostatic union responses. He says that uh, ineffability is a problem. And he says, we talked about this already, but real relations and the incarnation, that, that third bit as well. And I'm happy to do it back and forth so that you don't get a whole dump of four objections yeah. and try to remember them and then go back. So to the first, to the eunomian argument, one thing you said, Ryan, uh, is in your two premises, C2 and E1, I'll read them out loud for us, mm -hmm. but C2 said, a human person is a rational mind, soul, employing a human body. And the other one, that is, let me scroll up to it real quick. The other one, uh, E1 said, a human person is a rational soul and a human body. Now, in those two, you use the word is, and you're relating human person on one side of the is to a rational soul and a human body on the other side of the is. 
And I'm wondering what sort of is do we have here? Is it a composition relation? Is it a constitution relation? Is it strict identity? If it's composition, if it's composition, you might in fact have Cyril on your side. So here's one quotation from Cyril. I'll read it out loud. If, and we can put it up on the screen if people need it later. Cyril says in his third letter to Nestorius, this is in the ecumenical councils, uh, he says, quote, for the one and only Christ is not dual, not two, not dual, even though he be considered to be from two distinct realities brought together into an unbreakable union. In the same sort of way, here's the part that's relevant, a human being, though he be composed of soul and body, is considered to be not dual, but rather one out of two, end quote. So the thing I'm pointing at there is he says, the human being, though he be composed of body and soul. Um, so the, the question to you is, mm -hmm. what does the is in C2 and E1 mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Because what I'm, I'm, I don't think I formulate in the best way to make really capture the substance dualism. Because if, because I, because I'm a substance dualist, and I want to say I am a soul and I have a body. What makes me human is that I have some interesting, unique relationship to the body. So whatever I need that is to be to capture that is usually what I what I have in mind. So I don't think it's a constitution relation because um, I don't really, I don't think it's like, I don't know if I want to say it's a, even a a composition relation because I don't understand Mariology. I don't understand all these like parts and holes stuff in general. I just find that very mysterious, uh, and though, and not in an ineffably mysterious way. It's just of like I'm ignorant. I do not get it. Um, so, yeah. So I, I don't. I don't know um, because I want to say, yeah, I am a soul, and what makes me human is an embodiment relation. And I can tell you what an embodiment relation is, but I don't know if that's composition or it's definitely not constitution. So I don't know. What do you, What do you think is the best way to to state that on behalf of a dualist? Well, I would. Sure. Yeah. If I were putting on your shoes <clears throat> here or your body's shoes, if I, were, if I were just a soul, if I were doing that, I'd, I'd think that anything but identity isn't going to work for you. Mm. So I think you need identity. And um, I can tell you why. If it's composition or constitution, those are both relations that depend in part on things outside the things being related. So just for instance, you know, if I have a garden gnome statue that's made entirely of cement, and I drop it into a vat of cement, and it all dries into a giant chunk of cement. Uh, we typically think there's no statue there anymore. You have one uniform cement block. So the the composition of the statue into cement matters. What else is being involved in the relation? Um, if I have a pallet and I, you know, it's got like gaps in it, but I fill all the gaps with wood in the pallet, and then I use it for a wall in my house. We typically say I made that wall out of a pallet, but it's not a pallet anymore. I mean, you can't see through it. So um, what a thing is depends on what relations it enters into for composition. Now, I think that's right, and I think it is a composition relation there. Um, but if that's the case, then it's not going to be true that anytime you have a body-soul composite, you're going to have a, a person or a human person. Um, just like it's true that anytime you have a bunch of cement in a certain way, you've got a gnome because you put it in the big vat of cement, you no longer have one anymore. So the, the point here is just this. If you use composition or constitution, you're not going to get the claim that you want, that a human person um, is identical or is a body-soul composite. And so anytime you have one of those, you have a human person. So I mm. think you should go identity. With identity. So, well, but I mean, if you're a substance tool, you don't want to say you're identical to your body and you're not identical to the body and the soul because you're identical only to the soul. And so my body 
well, it's gone. Oh gosh. Well, but absent from the body present with the Lord. So I, I guess I'm kind of confused why a substance tools would want identity there with the body and the soul instead of just the soul. Yeah. I mean, I said, I was trying to answer it from your perspective. I know. I, was trying I, know to give sorry. A, <laughs> I, uh, I was trying to give a way of salvaging the move that I see from E1 to E2. Mm-hmm. I think E1 to E2 requires a strong is there. And it mm-hmm. sounds like as a substance dualist, as a substance dualist, you don't want a very strong is there. And I think that might be a problem for you. Uh, if you want identity, I could see how the argumentation would go. Because if they're mm-hmm. really identical, anytime you have one, you have the other. So if the sun assumes one, the sun assumes the other. And that's that's a conclusion you want. So I see how you get it with identity claims. I just don't see how you get it without the identity claims. Yeah, I see. Because I'm trying to, because this argument I hear, I'm trying to develop on behalf of Eunomius. And this is like, he uses the whole, this whole thing here. Whereas I like Peter Lombard, the objection that, that Peter Lombard considers, because I think all you really need is really the soul part. Because if, if just, because like, that's the person part, if you're a substance tools, right? And that's the real worry is if it's a two sons worry. Um, so I, I feel like Eunomius could get rid of the human body part. But since he's trying to mirror what he sees in all these other people, he's talking about the body as well. That's why it's in there. Um, yeah. No. Okay. But I can see. I can see the worry you're pointing out. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about that more. That's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was just the claim about the the derivation from E1 to E2. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, next point. You say you enter in uh, to the discussion after Eunomius. I mean, there you're just presenting his view. Uh, yeah. And then you, you you come forth into what you say. And um, there are three things I want to say there. One we've already talked about, but the first one is whether or not um, whether or not you have indistinguishable features in Nestorianism versus Cyril, Cyrillic. Mm-hmm. Um, there, let me start just with two quotations um, from the church fathers. And maybe if you could, could you toss up that, mm. that, that, yeah. that thing I sent you? Uh, page yeah. four is what I'm looking for here. Well, oh, you're fast. Where did you go? Yeah. I, I went ahead so, and scroll down earlier. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's a quotation from Cyril on page four of this. So this is about whether or not you get a person whenever you have a body soul composite. So he says, quote, For we do not say that the nature of the word was changed and became flesh, nor that he was turned into a whole man made of a body and soul. Here's the important part. Rather do we claim that the word in an unspeakable, inconceivable manner, that's the part you don't like, I think, but in an inconceivable manner, united to himself hypostatically, flesh enlivened by rational soul. And so became man and was called son of man, not by God's will alone or good pleasure, not by the assumption of a personal one. It goes on. But the, the main part I want to point out there is, I guess, two things. One is he's explicit that the son assumes a composite because his flesh enlivened by a rational soul. So mm-hmm. the composite of soul and body. And yet he denies explicitly that you get a second person there from it. So um, here I'm just pointing out that he's considered the sort of view that mm-hmm. you get two people there if you have this thing assumed. And the second thing I wanted to point out here was I thought I heard you say that Cyril claims that it was by his good, where's the wording here? Good pleasure that the assumption occurred. And here it seems to me Cyril saying the exact opposite, that it's not by good pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the two points, uh, the good pleasure account, and then Cyril's like, hey, that's not, 
it's not two people it's one pre- one person is am i getting those right yep that's right okay cool um i'm gonna come back into the studio so i'm looking at people um okay so so I was reading over uh, JL Prestige's um, uh, book on the early church fathers, and it was called Fathers and Heretics, um, uh, on this discussion. And so one of the things he points out is Cyril is really sloppy. Like there are points where he uses certain terms and then other points where he denies them. And good pleasure is one of these cases where he goes, good pleasure, I like that. And other places he's like, I don't like that. And you're like, whoa, Cyril, like pick a side. What are you, what are you doing here? And so I think that's something that's really important about this particular debate is there are times where Cyril says things that look like Nestorius. And then other times he says the opposite and you're trying to figure out which is it, where do you stand? Now, relating to the first point though, the point about Cyril's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's because of this union, there's only one person. Well, but that's also what Theodore and Nestorius say. They say because of this fellowship, this working fellowship of good, of good pleasure, uh, uh, there's, it's, we can count them as one. And so you've got that oneness claim going on. And that's also what the Nestorians were saying after Chalcedon too. And this is what the Emperor Justinian was like, okay, look, I know you're saying there's only one there, but I know for a fact your view entails that there's two people. That's why we need to clean up our, our terms. So, so yeah, so it's right. Cyril's like, yeah, it's only, it's only one there, but Nestorius and Theodore go, yeah, because of their fellowship, because they're working so well together, we say there's one. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it seems like they're still they're still looking at the same thing. It might be the case that um, here Cyril says, "Not thy good pleasure alone," and maybe mm-hmm. it's the case that the people you're referring to Something say extra. "good pleasure alone," and he doesn't. So maybe they're not saying the exact same thing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite possible. So, which is, and this is actually goes to like the the broader argument that I have um, in both the papers, all the different papers I've written on this, is to go. What's so unsatisfying and what seems to be everybody keeps trying to go is to say, like, we never found a good account of the hypostatic union that actually solves this problem. And so what we have is a, throughout church history is a series of attempts to do that, say there's got to be something more that really brings about this unity, and we don't have it yet. And that's what I personally find mm-hmm. unsatisfying is to go, okay, fine, not good pleasure alone, we need more. What is that more? And please don't tell me just ineffable mystery. Like, I, I want more. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. If that makes sense, yeah. Next point. Yeah, I, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, I appreciate it. Do you want me to bring up the screen again? Uh, next. No, I don't think I'll need it for a bit. That was okay. the longest quote I had, and I think we probably won't need it for the other ones. Uh, and this way you can see all our faces. That's nice. Uh, so you say that the claim, uh, you claim that the responses to the two sons' worry look indistinguishable from the Nestorian heresies. Now, I disagree. So here I'm going to focus primarily on Cyril. Uh, you had him as your. Uh, whipping boy might be too strong, but a guy that you were uh, chastising repeatedly during mm-hmm. your talk. So I'm going to um, not argue that he was a clean player, because I agree with you. He wasn't a clean player in a lot of those debates. But I want to argue that he, he um, well, you'll see what I want to argue. Okay. So Cyril himself was looking to give a response to the two sons' worry, just like you are. Uh, or Yeah, so he's looking to give a response to it anyway. And he's giving it to a living, breathing patriarch, to Nestorius himself. And Cyril writes, in fact, here's a quotation from Cyril's second letter to Nestorius, again accepted at Ephesus. He says, quote, If, however, we reject the hypostatic union as being either impossible or too unlovely for the word, we fall into the fallacy of speaking of two sons. End quote. So he's with you. There's a, there's a problem to be perceived here. But I think Cyril and Nestorius's views are certainly distinguishable in the following respect. They distinguish them themselves, as do their respective followers, 
And so did the Council of Ephesus and the following councils that explicitly affirmed Cyril's letters as orthodox and Nestorius as heretical. I mean, concerning the difference, Nestorius says in his second letter to Cyril, again, this is like accusatory evidence at Ephesus, but it's including the documents at Ephesus. He says he thinks those are deceived who think that, quote, God the word shared in being fed on milk, in gradual growth, in terror at a time of his passion, and in the need of angelical assistance, end quote. So as we know, Cyril, or sorry, Nestorius didn't want to affirm very many of the more mundane predicates, the, the more creaturely things of the Lord, of the word. He didn't want to say the word suffered and so on. Cyril, on the contrary, responds in his third letter to Nestorius, again included at Ephesus. I think all of this conversation can just happen in Ephesus because it's at Ephesus that most of this has worked out. Cyril says, quote, the only begotten word of God took flesh from the Holy Virgin and made it its own, his own, undergoing a birth like ours from her womb and coming forth a man from a woman. So he wants to predicate all those more mundane creaturely predicates of the word himself. Let's say the word suffered, the word died. So I think, um, I mean, if you look at these two, you can tell views apart by their entailments. Mm -hmm. If view one entails P and view two entails not P, then they're distinguishable views. They can't both be the same view. There's light between the two. And here we do have distinguishable views, one of which entails P. God, the word can't suffer, can't be born of woman, can't be breastfed. And the other one entails not P. He can be born of woman, suffer, be breastfed. And so they they seem distinguishable to me in my bed. That's really good. Um, this is so this brings up some other questions that I, I was hoping we could get into. So one of them is, is so what we're talking about is the communicatio idiomatum, like the communication of the different properties of each nature onto the one person, God the Son. And this is a huge point of contention in the early church and on through the Middle Ages of distinguishing views on which predicates you think are follow over onto the person. And Nestorius does, like, he's very clear. He's like, I don't want that predicate to follow over. I don't want that one to follow over. And where Cyril's like, no, 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 they've all got to go. And this is a, something that feels like it never really gets sorted out of exactly how these entailment relations are supposed to work. And, and what I want to know, what I've always wanted to know, I think comes back to the earlier point I made, which is if you got a good account of the hypostatic union, then now you can see this is how these these uh, predications are supposed to follow over from the each nature onto the person and which ones don't. Since Cyril didn't give us that account, I want to know, well, Cyril, how, how are you making these moves? And then Nestorius, I can kind of see why he's wanting... Well, how he's able to make the entailment relations uh, he's saying. I can see why, because he's going to say like, there's two different natures here. Um, and this one really is God, the son. And this one is the, like the human nature. And so God, the son's he's eternal. He's not getting born. Come on. Whereas Cyril's like somehow trying to get them to, to be more united. But I don't think he gives me that story of how, what, what grounds the kind of predications that he's making, the, the what grounds the, the entailment relations, which uh, for the communicatio of the matter. I don't think I'm saying that very well. Um, but basically, I, I feel like what I've got with Cyril is I've got this black box, and I'm told I'm supposed to be all these entailment relations, but how is those working? Well, there's just this, this mysterious black box there, and I can't peek inside to, to tell me what grounds these relations, uh, these entailment relations. Yeah. Is the question primarily, um, what, are the, what are the logical operations we can do? Or is the question more metaphysical, like what grounds the logical operations we can do from nature to person? 
It's more the metaphysical question because like all the work that you've done satisfies in my mind, like this is like, if I have a story here of how these things are supposed to fit together, well, then this is like the logic of it. But I'm always like, but what's that hypostatic union that makes all of this work? Yeah, good. So uh, I started by saying they are in fact distinguishable, the Nestorian and the Cyrillic view. Do mm. you agree or disagree that they have different entailments? I want to say if 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 the difference really is, since I'm more interested in this metaphysical question, if the difference is just ineffable mystery, then I don't know how we are making any of these different kind of entailment relations. Uh, so I don't know how Cyril is able to get to where he's getting. I can't follow in his footsteps because the starting point was mystery. And so I'm like, okay, so I see you want to make claims X, Y, and Z. And I can see uh, Nestorius is going, oh, no, 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 no. But I'm like, what justifies you in making that? And he's like, mystery. And I'm like, okay, now I don't know what the difference is supposed to be between you two. Because you both have a three-part Christology. You both have God the Son plus a soul plus a body. And you both say, you know, they're united in such a way that they're one. But but each side goes, I don't like what you say. Well, I don't like what you say. And I'm like, you've got... You still got the three part Christology. Like, what's 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 the deal? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one deal is one says God died for you, and one yeah. says God suffered for you, and the other one says God didn't suffer for you. That seems like yeah. a pretty important distinction to draw between, you know, who died for your sins? Was it God Himself, or was it some created man who's very vaulted, very important status since Nestorius's view, but not mm-hmm. in fact the Son of God? So, I mean. There's something different about those two views that, that the Son of God died for you and he didn't. And I think they disagree on that. So there's got to be some distinction between the two views. Right. And I want to know what that is because I, I much prefer the direction Cyril's wanting to go because that seems to me that's what the New mm-hmm. Testament's saying is God the Son himself came and died for us. And so I'm like, all yeah. right, how do I make sense of that? Because I think things like yeah. impassibility and all this sort of stuff, they get in the way of that sort of story. And Cyril's like, no, they don't. And I'm like, Okay, tell me how they don't. Uh, and he's like, mystery. And I'm like, okay. And then I can see Sarah Coakley come in and go, and he's abusing the mystery card here. And I'm like, right. So, so on to maybe ineffable mystery. Uh, it sounds yeah. like that's the next place to go. And that's, there we go. that's yeah. the next point I wanted to raise as well. Good. So um, you said, at least in what you sent me, I think I think you may have said this out loud as well. Um, and no shame if you didn't, because you weren't like bound to what you sent me on Monday. It was a, yeah. a kindness on your part to send it at all. So I appreciate that. But in what you sent on Monday, you said, quote, The main problem with this strategy, that is the strategy that Cyril employs, is that the hypostatic union is said to be ineffably mysterious, in which case we have no way of knowing the difference between orthodoxy and Nestorianism, end quote. Now, we've already talked a bit about a way of knowing the difference, or at least on my view, a way of knowing the difference. Um, The second part, is it really an ineffable mystery? Well, in a word, yes. Yeah, you're right to point it out. the earlier quote I gave, the long one, if you read a bit lower, it said it was marvelous and mysterious, the hypostatic union. Pause. Jordan, introduce us to that little schmooper. Uh, this, this is Ezra. This is important, Jordan. It is. Yeah. Hey, Ezra. But one of my other sons, he's he's asleep on the floor over here, so um, <laughs> we're keeping me busy. <laughs> uh, you're a champion. Good job. But right, sorry for interrupting the flow. <laughs> no, right. I'm sorry. For, I, I, kiddos are great. Uh, let's see, where was I? Ah, yes. So here's another thing Cyril says. We're talking about ineffable mystery. Cyril says, there is one Lord Jesus Christ, even though we do not ignore the difference of natures, out of which we say that the ineffable union was affected. Okay, 
So we've got ineffability here. I've got another quote too from Second Constantinople with ineffable in it. It's clear, Brian is right. They do talk about ineffable mystery. Um, and I think you're, you, Ryan, you don't like this sort of language. You said it here, but you also said it in your book, The End of the Timeless God. And there you said, uh, quote, I find ineffable mysteries to be incoherent and repugnant to Christian theology, end quote. Yeah, it sounds like now, me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whether you would accept that the seeming entailment of the Christology of the ecumenical councils from Ephesus on is incoherent because after all, they use, inco- they use ineffable mysteries. And that I don't know if you would judge that they're, what they say is repugnant to Christian theology. I mean, they do say it's an ethical mystery. You say that's imp- repugnant to Christian theology. Um, so I don't know if, on your view, they're, the ecumenical councils and the Christology of the church is incoherent and repugnant. Um, and I don't even know what you would use as a standard to judge if something mm-hmm. is repugnant to Christian theology, if you're not pointing to the councils, at least in part, for setting that standard of Christian theology. Yeah, this is really good stuff. So I'm trying to remember um, the context for the first quote where I say it's repugnant. Uh, was that when I was talking about just ineffable mysteries, like the definitions of it being itself referentially incoherent? Give me a sec. It's on page one. <laughs> it's on page 102. I don't know actually what you were talking about at the time. Mm. Uh, I kept the quote, but forgot the context. That's all right. That's all right. Because I because there's because I because okay. I can think of several different things I was saying. So in one in one kind of argument I would give is to go ineffable mysteries are supposed to be these unspeakable mysteries, and I'm like, we just spoke about it, so you've contradicted yourself. And then I've got this funny quote from Augustine going, "Yeah, I totally uh, contradicted myself," and uh, yeah, what do we what do you want from me? And he kind of moves on, uh, and I'm like. I guess you're like one of my heroes. Come on, man. Like, give me something better here than just going, yeah, I contradict myself. Uh, and, but then now that I'm older, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes like I have contradictory views too. Gosh, you know, I'll figure it out later. Um, so yeah. So I think when you're making ineffable mystery claims, typically it does look to me that you are engaged in some kind of self-referential incoherence. You're saying something that like, it's an unspeakable mystery. And I'm like, well, you just spoke about it. Well, it's an unknowable thing. I'm like, tell me a little bit more about this. And they're like, tell me a little bit more. I'm like, you know too much about this unknowable thing. Uh, you're, not, I mean, you're not allowed to know things about these unknowable. Uh, so that's usually how I see it got, kind of going. Uh, a lot of times it's it's used as, I want to say like almost like as a false piety to to go, look, I'm about to talk about God. We can't know anything about God at all. You know, and I start wrapping myself in the Holy Spirit and maybe I throw some incense around. And then I go on and like, you know, for 30 minutes, here's what God's like. And I'm like, you started with the claim God's unknowable. Now you're going on forever because you know all the stuff about God. So I find this to be just incoherent. Uh, and and other times too, I think it uh, is a stopper. A, it prevents theology from happening. So these kind of debates between Cyril and Nestorius, I think are a great case in point of going, what's repugnant about this is it prevented, I think, uh, Christian theology from clarifying points that really needed to be clarified because we really don't want to say there's two sons there. We want to say there's one. And this constant play of the mystery card, it didn't it didn't really get us any clarity. And then that's why you have people, all these delegates in the East going, you guys look, that looks like Nestorianism. Well, what is the sickness? This is, a, you know, the grossness. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't think I'd say that out loud. Maybe on Twitter, you'd say that. But, uh, you know, they didn't have Twitter back in that time. But But they're making these claims because they're not convinced. And because the mystery card kept getting played instead of clarifying them. And then we have to have all these subsequent councils to clarify them. So that's where I think a lot of times the repugnance comes in is it's it's either just intellectually dishonest, it's incoherent, or it's preventing us from actually getting clarity on something where we really need clarity because we need to get something that looks like the biblical account that we have. Now, in terms of authority, so I'm not Catholic, as you know, uh, and 
so what I want to say is what a lot of different Protestant traditions, well, not all the Protestant traditions will say is the ultimate authority is scripture. And what we're trying to do is follow what scripture says. And these different creeds, as I see them, are attempts to try to get at what's going on in scripture. Uh, do they always do it very well? I don't know. Uh, there's this, uh, well, since we're on a Baptist show, I'll quote a Baptist for a second. So there's Augustus Strong. Uh, Augustus Strong has this really funny quote where he says, uh, the creeds are a witness of what the church fathers did believe. What do they believe now in heaven? I don't know. But, uh, but you know, this is, this is a statement <laughs> of what they did believe. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I love that. I just like the, the cheeky kind of stuff. And I, and I think that's, that's kind of yeah. where I want to stand too. I'm like, I want to go with this as much as I can. But if you keep giving me incomplete stories, I'm not satisfied. The analytic theologian in me wants to go, no, give me a complete story. The church deserves a complete story as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you as best as we can. We might, we might, dis- yeah. we might disagree about how far best we can can go yeah, yeah. in this particular case. Um, I wonder too, if you think of ineffability as so strong as you can't even assert something about it, even saying ineffability is saying one too many things about an ineffable thing. Maybe it's just too strong of a notion of ineffability you have. Maybe you need to ratchet it back a little bit so that people mm-hmm. aren't immediately contradicting themselves when they call something ineffable. Yeah. So Parker in, in the chat, Parker, uh, 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 he's pointing out um, that I'm a student of Keith Yandel. And so Keith Yandel has this great paper called uh, On Not Confusing Ineffability with Incomprehensibility. And one of the things he goes through is he points out, here's all these cases of ineffable mystery. Well, that's incoherent. If they mean this, it's incoherent. And, he, and like some earlier version of the paper that he published in like the 70s, he does one of those like Chisholm things where you've got like 20 premises of yeah. like different versions of what it could mean. He's like, each one of those is incoherent. You're like, all right. Uh, what he does in the more recent paper is he's like, what it seems like what they really want is incomprehensibility, but that doesn't fit with what they're saying. Like they're clearly going with this incoherent notion. What most theologians should be saying is, well, yeah, I don't know everything. There's no more God. Uh, and I'm like, well, okay, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that seems like an obvious starting point, but why would I want to use this, this language that quite literally means unknowable and unspeakable. And then even times like start wrapping myself in incense uh, when I say it and going like, look, you know, like it really is. So this thing is completely beyond me. It's un- it's completely beyond our comprehension. I'm like, well, you can comprehend it somewhat, can't you? Uh, otherwise, God can't reveal himself if it's completely unknowable and completely incomprehensible. So uh, what I what I do as a as a post-Yandelian, is that a thing? I don't know. I'll make it a thing. Um, as a post-Yandelian, I want to say we've got a lot of language we've inherited from past generations. And I think we should acknowledge when it's incoherent and, and really say what we should be saying, which is, no, God's not completely incomprehensible because if he was, revelation's a non-starter. What we should say is, well, of course I can't know everything there's no about God. It's not terribly interesting. And it was what Keith Yandel would say, it's not religiously significant because I can't know everything there is to know about my shoelaces. I don't worship my shoelaces. I worship God. Why? Because the things I do know about God, I know that he's all powerful, that he's all knowing, that he's on and on and on. So. Can I know everything about him? No, but it's not terribly interesting because everything else is in the same boat. I don't know. Every, I don't know there, everything there is to know about everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you had said at some points that Cyril was playing the mystery card and Cyril was mm-hmm. uh, was being cheeky and that he wasn't uh, trying to analyze any further the concept of um, the union. And I think that's a bit too strong. Uh, mm-hmm. So for one thing. Um, for one thing, he tells us that it's the union can be understood, quote, in such a way as we may say that the soul of man does in his human body. That is, the sun is there, it can be understood in such a way as we understand the soul in the body. Now, he's not saying exactly the same way, but he's giving us some analogy we can employ to understand it a bit better. And he says, you know, it's not of good pleasure. He says it's not of dignity. The union is not of authority. 
the sign of equality of honor or juxtaposition or relative participation or mere conjunction. So they say a lot of things about what the relation isn't and then give us some analogies for what it is. I'm wondering like, what, what more do they need to do to satisfy you? Like take, yeah. I, I'm offering to take some, um, take some other metaphysical relation that we use a lot, like instantiation. I can tell you some things about what it does. It relates one thing to another. I can tell you how it does it sometimes. I can tell you, you know, what it's for metaphysically. I can tell you some necessary conditions it takes. But I don't think I can give you an analysis of instantiation that doesn't just repeat the things I just said. So what what more do you need to be satisfied with the hypothetic you? What do I have to say to get you to drive in this car and drive away today from my lot, the yeah. Christology lot? This is good. So I, this brings up a, something I, I don't think I've mentioned at all yet. So it's the, how, what ex exactly is the relationship between the sun and the soul and the body? So it is very common in the early church. You have that analogy of going, well, it's kind of like the soul and body relationship. You see it in the Cappadocians. But something you see a lot as well is to go, the soul uh, acts as a wall to preserve the sun from the grossness of human flesh. That's Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, and, and the idea being, well, because the sun is impassable, uh, we got to have this other thing, the soul that does the suffering. Uh, and somehow it's united so we can say there's one there. And I'm like, well, now it looks like I've got some other person there doing the suffering on behalf of Jesus. Uh, and I don't know how they're, they're these two two different minds, each with their own will, each with their own thoughts, their own experiences. I don't know how they're, they're one, they're supposed to be one person. Uh, and so, because otherwise I could be like, yeah, the relationship between a, a soul and a body, that's really straightforward. But then I got to throw this other soul in there to, kind of prevent the sun from from suffering i mean that's part of one of the motivations to throw that extra soul in there uh is is to preserve impassibility and i and i'm like oh i don't i don't like this i don't know how this is supposed to work so that's one of the things preventing me from being able to drive off the lot uh, with you but my, my question to you mm. is more um what else do you need to feel comfortable with the analysis given um, he gives us, he says, here's some nearby relations. It's none of those. Mm -hmm. He says, here's an analogy. He tells us some necessary conditions for it. They have to be natures. They have to be in a person. He tells us some necessary entailments of it. It undergirds the communication of idioms. That's a lot to know about it. What, I mean, when I think of other metaphysical relations, I know just about as much about part of, I know just about as much about instantiation and inherence. All of these are posited for doing some metaphysical work. And it's not like we can explain how instantiation works. Like it's got hooks mm -hmm. that get into the platonic forms. Yeah. We just, we define it into, into our parlance, into our theory. What, yeah. That's what we do with hypothetic union too. Yeah, that's really good. Um, okay. So let me rephrase what I, what I should have said a second ago. So it looks like I've got this really good analogy, the, the mind body relationship and say, okay, that's cool. I'm like, all right, I like this. Okay. I understand what that is. And that's, you know, and, and, and if you're already substance dualist, if you want to say a, what it makes you a human is you're a soul employing a body. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. But then you're like, well, hang on a second. I know you're about to accept that analogy is really good. Let me throw this other soul in there really quick because that soul is a wall to preserve, to protect the sun from the grossness of human flesh. And then I'm like, well, now I've lost the analogy you gave me. That seems the situation to me when I, when I, uh, bring in that, that, that sort of worry, that concern from Gregor of Nazianz that the soul is supposed to serve as a wall to protect the sun from the grossness of human flesh. I've lost the body-soul relationship analogy. Huh. So you have body to soul, and then you yeah. have that whole composite to word. 
So it's yeah. not like the body to soul, the soul to word. It's you have the word to the body soul composite, just like the soul is to the body. I don't see how throwing in another soul. I actually don't think, well, you might know it better than I do, but I don't remember them ever having like a, I don't remember that move being made at least explicitly. But hmm. even if one guy does that somewhere, I mean, it doesn't mean that you, you can't understand the analogy anymore. Well, it's it's not just that one. This is a very common move. So this is a common motivation for, um, so Apollinarius, for instance, he gets rejected for lots of reasons. One of which is because it seems like he is violating impassibility. And so when you don't have that soul there to, uh, you're going to get the sun suffering in his, in his divine nature. And so that's why you see a very common move is this relationship to go, the sun is related to the soul. And then that soul is related to the body. Now, not everybody in church history makes that relationship. Um, uh, was Anna Marmadoro and, uh, Jonathan Hill have a, a nice paper on this. I forgot which one it is, where they lay out all the, they try to go historically, they lay out a taxonomy of all the different people of how they relate. So some of them go, well, the soul's, the sun's directly related to the, the, the body and the soul. And some others like, ah, oh, no, no, it's only just through this. So there's, uh, there's differences throughout church history on this. Um, the concern I have is when I do have that other soul there, I've got a relationship between one rational mind and another rational mind. And I'm like, that looks like too many minds, too many thinkers to be one person. Uh, and so now I don't understand the soul body relationship anymore because the soul body relationships, one thinker, one body, one person, one body. Okay. Now I got two thinking things, each with their own free will related to a body. Okay. This, it's not schizophrenia, um, but it's, I, it's not, it's not the normal like substance dualist sort of story I would, I would have, which I do understand. I'm like, yeah, if it's that, I can understand that. I don't understand how this is supposed to work when I've got two uh, thinkers and two wills going mm -hmm. on. So I think that's, I think that's, again, it's just this Nestorian concern I've got. I see. Yeah. It strikes me that we know about as much about hypostatic union and its entailments uh, as we do about other primitive metaphysical mm -hmm. notions we do, that we use often. Um, so I don't feel so much of a, a worry about, about that there. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's good. I know we lost Jordan for a minute. Um, it's okay. There he is. I need to unmute hey, myself. Jordan. I'm back. So let's go. Let's go ahead and take some questions here yeah, before, yeah, I was thinking before we end. Hour. Yeah. So I was running up the stairs, man. So that's you right, man. been rocking. Out. <laughs> um, but that's the beauty of those, like you know, wireless headphones, so I can listen to you guys while I'm doing stuff. All right. So where do we want to go first? I know you guys have all seen the. I mean, Ryan and Tim, you guys see the question. So if there was one you saw that stuck out, I wasn't paying so close far, enough attention. That you want to hit. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't paying super close attention either. Not because they were bad, just because I was focused on trying to save my stuff. Oh, no, they were, they were garbage. That's why I was not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Parker, you, you put something in here. Let's just see here. Soul body analogy uh, isn't as good as the video game analogy or the author character analogy. Um, I think Parker's trying to riff on, he's got his own like author character stuff that he's trying to take from Kevin Van Hooser. I don't know how familiar you guys are with, with those sort of analogies, but I'm one, mm -hmm. I guess the question or the thought behind it is maybe there's a better analogy to get at what's going on than just the soul body analogy. I don't mm -hmm. know if you guys have any thoughts on that. If you want to punt, that's fine, but. Uh, I've got some thoughts. So, because Catherine Rogers has a paper, I don't remember if it ever got published. Now that I think about it, I gave her feedback on this years ago, where she tries to use the video game analogy for the incarnation. Uh, and I thought, 
that doesn't quite work. And here's why. When I look at a video game, I don't think that these these avatars on the screen have a soul, have a rational soul. Uh, and since the Chalcedonian account is supposed to be the son adopts a rational soul in a body, then I'm like, it doesn't it look it doesn't really look like that. It looks more like an Apollinarian analogy because because it, it's just this thing that doesn't have a rational soul. Same thing with the author character analogies. Uh, if I'm writing a book, there's only one soul there doing any of the, any of the work, and that's me. There's no other rational minds involved. There's all fictional characters. Um, unless I go like full on idealism, like like Sam Levens does, and just say like we're all God's imaginary friends. I, I don't. I feel like this is just not going to be analogous to to what we want. So. What if we just kick substance dualism to the curb and say that's just a false way to think about the nature of the human person? Is there a pathway to go down sort of the anthropology route that might be able to help? Mm. Um, well, the two papers I've got on physicalism, I, I, what I bring up is ignore uh, wh- whether or not like physicalism is actually you know, what's going on in the councils. You can just go, eh, I could put a, adopt whatever metaphysics I want. I don't care if the Emperor Justinian gets mad about me doing that. I'll do it anyway. Like, okay, cool. I think you're still going to get a lot of the same problems. Uh, So uh, Glenn Andrews Peoples has a really good paper trying to defend the compatibility of uh, physicalism and the incarnation. And what you've got is you've still got two minds, two wills, each thinking their own things. And and I'm like, okay, you haven't really made any advancements. If you go with a Merrick-style account... Merrick's account is different. He's still a physicalist. He's still an animalist. But what he does is he doesn't think that there really are two minds there. He thinks that the sun somehow transforms and becomes wholly material. So it's it's a it's a it's a very different account. That's not really what's going on with any of any of the, the councils. I think. I just don't know how you can make a non-physical thing become entirely physical. I, so I think it's a different a different problem you've got. Yeah. All right. Here's a question. We've got from John. Um, how do you make sense basically of divine simplicity if the sun enters into a composite with a human nature? Tim, I don't know if you want to answer this because I think you possibly talked about this in one of your books. I can't remember. Yeah, I, um, I have two thoughts on this. First is you got to understand simplicity in the right sort of way. So um, Aquinas following John of Damascus will say that the simple God becomes complex. He says that the sun is both simple and complex. And um, you find that elsewhere as well. And that's a hot mess, unless you understand the predicates the right sort of way. I think you should understand them like this. To be simple is to have a nature that's not composed, in any sense of the word composed. And to be complex is to have a nature that's composed, in at least one of the senses of the word composed. And insofar as Christ, uh, the word, prior to the incarnation, prior to the incarnation, the word has a nature, which is not composed at all, on, on my view. Uh, then he fulfills the conditions required to be simple. So he maintains simplicity. And uh, he counts as complex insofar as he, in the incarnation, gains a human nature. So I think you do get you do get to preserve divine simplicity even when he enters into composition with the human nature. Because it's not that like the divine nature composes with the human nature. It's not that the word himself, the person, composes with the human nature. It's, um, it's different than both those things. Cool. Let's see here. We've got, I don't know, let's take maybe one more question. Which one should we pick here? Um, Ooh, pressure's on. This make it a good one. one. So 
So is there a way around the two sons worry if instead of absolute identity, we use relative identity in the spirit of Peter Geach, where something can be identical to Y with respect to X and so on? Tim, you've, you've written on this, haven't you? None of the two sons worry, but, but on relative, relative identity, identity, I've written a little bit. Yeah. Um, here, is a, here is an autobiographical lament. And it's that I have tried so hard to understand it. And uh, Joseph Jedweb uh, is a man of infinite patience and help and intellectual ability. And he's tried to walk me through slowly. But every time I try to take off the training wheels and think about relative identity, I fall straight off the bike. Um, relative identity theorists say that it could be the case that there is something X, X identical to something Y. Um, I could be one man with two labels. I have, you know, hi, I'm Tim. Hi, I'm Dr. Paul two different name tags on, and something can be true of the man labeled Tim and false of the man labeled Dr. Paul. One and the same thing, two different labels, X and Y, such that Leibniz's law fails. And Lord help me, I don't, I don't understand how that works. So um, I bet you a dollar someone can do something snazzy with relative identity theory and get out of any of these Christological worries. Um, but I just... Uh, well, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> you can do it. I just don't see how it works. I think it's and fair. there's one more question I'll show uh, regarding the distinction or definitions between ineffable and incomprehensible. Um, so, I mean, it's... it's mm. uh, yeah, I guess I should say I'm not entirely satisfied with incomprehensible either because if God's incomprehensible, then he can't reveal himself to us in any comprehensible way. And since Christianity is kind of a religion based on revelation and God revealing himself and making himself known in some kind of comprehensible way, then I'm like, maybe we should just kind of dial down all of these claims and go, yeah, I don't know everything there is to know about God. And that's all we really should be saying. Yeah. I kind of think that, um, so I, I, I approach these questions sort of from a Thomistic point of view, or maybe a, more generally a scholastic point of view. And I think that something is conceivable uh, in a hierarchy of concepts, you know, you've got like a color, which is a quality, which is a so on and so forth. And I guess what I think of when I think of ineffability is I think that there are some things out there, like the hypostatic union, like God, that when we take our our um, fundamental concepts, like Aristotle's 10 categories, for instance, they don't fit neatly, wholly into any of those categories. I don't think the hypostatic union is an accident. I don't think it's a substance, created substance either. It's its own certain sort of thing. I think there's a sense in which God is a substance, but I'm not going to say it's a substance in exactly the same sense that I'm a substance. So I think you're maybe you could say something is ineffable when it um, it doesn't fall under your it doesn't neatly fit into your concepts that you derive from creation. Maybe you could say it that way. I'm not sure. And then you could say that the hypostatic union is ineffable and it's got more grist than just saying it's incomprehensible. Because as Ryan pointed out, my shoe or whatever is incomprehensible to me. But Do you think you should time. just get better concepts then in that case? Well, I can get disjunctive concepts, but I don't know how to form the concept. of. I mean, I have a concept of a thing which unites the natures and mm. the concept of the thing which undergirds a hypostatic union. But I can't give you genus and difference to define the species of hypostatic union. I see. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks to you both for taking the time to do this. As a reminder, if you're listening, if you want to support them, I mean, go check out their websites and buy their books. 
Uh, so Tim Paul, he's got timpaul.wordpress.com as well as his faculty profile on St. Thomas. Ryan has rtmullins.com with links to everything. So go buy their books to support them. Um, and if you want to support us, hit subscribe and do the like stuff and all, whatever else. I'm new to YouTube, figuring it out. So whatever else you're supposed to do, you watch on those cool YouTube channels that tell you to do, do that now. Uh, so I, we thank you for tuning in and hopefully this has been really helpful and encouraging and can get you thinking. So this has been the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet with only one Baptist this time, but just enough. We'll talk to you guys soon. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.